It's a great honor for me to be here. It's been a long time coming. I was here in 2015 for the first summer. That was eight long years ago. Of course, I've had the privilege to come back a few times and develop really important relationships, important for me, maybe not for you, but important for me, with many of you over the years, and you've really sustained me and, and brought me to, to the priesthood. So I'm eternally grateful for you, and I, as I said at the ordination, my prayer is that I can do the same for you. You've led me to the Father, and now I hope to do the same for you as a priest, as your priest. So here we are on the solemnity of Corpus Christi, the most holy body and blood of Jesus Christ, great celebration of the Eucharist. Now I must share that the question that I received most, most often as a seminarian, and I imagine it won't be too different as a priest, is how can I raise my children so that they grow up to be practicing Catholics? or a variation of that. My children have left the faith. What can I do to help bring them back? We know this is a, a cross, a pain, a suffering in many parents' hearts, and maybe in many of your hearts or of your loved ones. And we know the numbers. For every person that enters the Catholic Church, seven Catholics leave. And even those that are are in the church that are practicing Catholic, only 30% of them believe in what we proclaim in the solemnity, that Jesus Christ is truly present in the body and blood, in the Eucharist, in the bread, in the species of bread and wine, in the form, in the appearance of bread and wine. This great gift that God has given us, his own body and blood, not only 2,000 years ago on the cross, but actually brought to our table, to our altar, day after day, week after week. Only 30% of us, I don't know of us here, but only 30% of us in the United States that are practicing Catholics believe that. So the question, so he begs the question, what, what's going on there? Why are most of us, why, is, why are, are most of our children, why is the next generation not growing up to really receive this great gift, the greatest gift that there is, the gift of God himself? So I'm going, to try to, I'm going to take a stab at that. I'm going to try to propose an answer and maybe a solution or part of a solution for going forward. First, I'll just start with two misinterpretations of what it is that we say about the Eucharist. And these are common. The first one is that when Jesus said these words, and of course I read them here in Portuguese, but we've heard them many times, that my, my flesh is true flesh and my blood is, is true blood. And whoever eats my flesh and whoever drinks my blood will have eternal life, and those who don't, won't. So Jesus was very clear and very explicit that this is essential for salvation. So if I were to, I won't do this, I won't embarrass you, but if I asked you for a show of hands, who wants to go to heaven when they die? I think the percentage would be high. And then Jesus says, well, if you want to go to heaven, then you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So then I might follow up, how many of you eat Jesus' flesh and drink Jesus' blood on a regular basis. I suspect, not pointing anyone, pointing fingers at anyone in particular, but I suspect that that number of hands would be lower. Jesus 
is not talking about the Eucharist. That's the first misinterpretation. When Jesus says, my body and my blood, that he's saying something symbolic. You have to do what I say. You have to live my commandments. You have to hear my word proclaimed. You have to be a good person. So long as you don't hurt anyone or rob any banks, that's what Jesus means by eat my flesh and drink my blood. Some sort of symbolic meaning. That's the first misinterpretation. Of course, Protestants and evangelicals explicitly believe this, but sometimes Catholics believe this as well. And the other is the other misinterpretation is that when Jesus says these things, my my flesh and my blood, that he's only talking about the Eucharist. In other words, so long as I come to Mass and I receive the Eucharist on a regular basis, then I'm good. Because I'm fulfilling Jesus' commandments to eat his flesh and drink his blood. If I'm doing this, then when I die, I'll go to heaven. That's another misinterpretation. So what is the right one? The key is given in the first reading. And this often happens in the church's structure, in the church's lectionary. But the readings go together. And this solemnity presents that to us beautifully. So in the first reading, I won't read it all in English, but in the first reading, we heard Moses saying, this is from the eighth chapter of Deuteronomy. And he was saying to them, now that they've been in, in, the Israelites had been in exile for 40 years, that, that God was going to provide manna for them and manna was going to sustain them. Now that image really struck me as I was reading this a couple of weeks ago and praying with this in preparation for this Mass. Them being in exile for 40 years. How many of you know something about being in exile, don't you? Having left Portugal, having left the Azores, and then having left California, most of you, many of you, to come here, to come to southern Idaho. Did you imagine that you would leave Portugal to end up in southern Idaho, or did your parents or your grandparents? And all the troubles, all the, the hardships, all the trials that you've had to endure to get here. And of course, all of the strife, all of the divisions and violence and divorce and all the rest that has occurred during all this time. And yes, all of the Catholics that have fallen away during this time. Why did, why did this happen? Moses said, to test you by affliction and find out whether or not it was your intention to keep his commandments. God did this to test you by affliction and find out whether or not it was your intention to keep his commandments. Because it's easy to follow God's commandments when things are going well, when we're getting what we want. It's difficult when we're not, when we're tested. This gives us an opportunity to express our true love to God. To say, God, I'm not doing this for you so that I can receive a reward from you. I'm doing this for you to love you, to be in relationship with you. Now, we don't always experience the commandments in this way. I know for myself growing up, when I started learning about God's commandments and the church's commandments, I received those as some sort of restriction. The world was proposing to me different ways of living a happy life, a joyful life, a fulfilling life. 
And here comes God in the church giving me restrictions, giving me commands, giving me rules to, to put boundaries on my happiness. That's how I thought, that's how I was receiving those commandments. And perhaps many of you have received the commandments in this way as well. When you hear, oh, here's a commandment from God, it's some, sort of, it's some negative prescription. But here's, why we, here's the reason why we receive it that way. I'm going to read a paragraph from one of my favorite spiritual books. After a short meditation on sin, the author writes, The human person now begins to live out of fear rather than out of desire. He or she sees life, vulnerable human relationships, and the commands of God no longer as a liberating gift, but as a pure expression of love's generosity. Not as a liberating gift, as a pure expression of love's generosity, but as an external and arbitrary burden, constricting the heart. So what those commandments that are meant to liberate us, that are meant to guide us into relationship with God and with, and with one another, we receive them as a restriction that constricts the heart. This is due to the fall. This is due to sin. One thinks that one must now measure up and attain through one's own efforts to what was meant only to be a pure gift, received, interiorized, and lived in joyful freedom. Rather than living from love, within love, and ever deeper into love, the person now feels that it is necessary to live toward love, a love that is inaccessible and absent and can only be found at the end of a long and lonely journey. See, we now think that we have to do something in order to become good enough in order to be loved by God. We have to perfect ourselves in order to be loved by, be loved by God. This is how we come to understand our lives and our relationship with God. And if we do this, we erroneously believe, at the end of our life, maybe we'll receive some sort of love from God once we get to heaven. But this is precisely the opposite of how God intended it. This, of course, is a lie. God's love is just as present to us as it has always been. It still envelops us entirely on all sides. It still penetrates every fiber of our being. We have become close to its presence and turned in upon ourselves. The living relationship that was meant to be ours with God has been ruptured by sin, by false independence, by fear. Our hearts have collapsed in upon themselves and we're tempted to clothe ourselves with whatever we can find to hide our nakedness. Since we are afraid to open ourselves to vulnerability, uncertain of whether or not authentic love will be there to receive and shelter us. We do this with one another. We hide ourselves from one another. We put on fig leaves. We put on various habits and patterns and activities and hobbies and pursuits. We all have our different ones. All things to try to project an image of ourselves that we think will be received by our loved ones, and finally that will be received by the Lord. This is the trick of the enemy. To trick us into believing that we have to become something or someone else in order to receive love from others and from God. The good news of the gospel is precisely the opposite. That God has come to earth and died on the cross precisely so that in our mess, in our brokenness, we can be in relationship with him 
and with one another as we are. And as we live this way, God heals us and restores us and even perfects us, restoring us to the way that he created us to be, which is saints. He created us to be saints. And now Jesus has given us an opportunity to be saints once again. Even though we rejected the initial invitation in the garden, now Jesus has restored the opportunity for us to live as saints, to be, to be fully and perfectly united with the Father. Now, this is something that Jesus does for us. This is the missing piece. This is something that Jesus does in us. We don't do it ourselves, and then we present ourselves to the Father so that he can accept us. We present ourselves to the Father as we are, and we come to him as beggars, as children, as sons and daughters. And in that mess, in that brokenness, Jesus receives us and draws our heart into his own and lifts that heart united to his, to the Father. This is what happened on the cross. And when Jesus died and resurrected and ascended into heaven, he permanently opened the gateway for us to follow. We think we're clever when we sin or when we manipulate others or when we pursue things that will lift us up, that will exalt us, that will exalt ourselves. We think we're doing something clever. And you know, here in, in the West, in the West, in Western Christianity, we call these things sins. In the East, they actually talk about, more, talk, talk about it more as evil thoughts. And I, I kind of like that better. Sure, we're culpable, but we do it because we're tricked by the enemy. The enemy proposes evil thoughts to us. Thoughts of greed and pride and lust and avarice and wrath and all the rest. And we're tricked by him. And every time that we do, we become something less than what God created us to be. We deprive ourselves of that opportunity of living from love and within love and ever deeper into love. We believe the lie that only in the future we'll be able to live love. Okay, so now Jesus did this 2,000 years ago, but this is not just a mere history lesson because the solemnity of Corpus Christi, of the most holy body and blood of Christ, is precisely the celebration that the act of Christ on the cross is represented at every Mass. Every Mass, we come to church, we bring our hearts, we bring our brokenness, we bring our imperfections, precisely as we are. And we present our hearts on the altar. And Jesus Christ, in the priest, receives those offerings and unites them to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, transforming them into Jesus' own body and blood so that we can receive Jesus as we are 
and have our own hearts restored. So those misinterpretations that I mentioned in the beginning, the, sec- the first one is easy to see why the, the error that Jesus, that the Eucharist is only a symbol, is an error. But the second one we can miss if we're thinking if we don't if we're thinking about the Eucharist as just something that we receive on Sundays. And I said that the, the key is in that first reading because there is this line in the first reading. Not by bread alone does one live, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. It's not enough to just come to Mass on Sundays. It's not enough to just come to Mass when there's a new priest in town. We have to come to Mass every Sunday and every holy day of obligation. Not because we're holy, but precisely because we're sinners. And if we want our children and their children to grow up and be Catholics, we can't just say to them what it is that they have to do. We have to ourselves give our entire hearts to Christ. I'll tell you just when I did this, it was 12 years ago in World Youth Day in 2011 in Madrid. I was with two and a half million Catholics from all around the world with Pope Benedict. And I'd been walking a journey of coming back to the church and coming back to the Lord. And on the vigil mass, I got on my knees and I prayed to God and I said, God, I give you my life. I have no idea what that's going to look like, but I give you my life. Do with it what you will. And I haven't done that perfectly, far from it, over the last 12 years. Ever since that act of self-offering, I've been trying to take it back. But God can work with that. Pope Benedict said, Being Christian is not the result of an ethical choir or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. So I invite you, brothers and sisters, on this day, on this solemnity of Corpus Christi, the most holy body and blood of Jesus Christ, to give your lives to Christ. Why not today? Why wait another day? Why continue to live as if love is only waiting for us at the end of a long and lonely day? journey. Why not begin to live today from love and within love and ever deeper into love? So as we go into the liturgy of the Eucharist, as we enter into this great mystery, I invite you to say that prayer in your own hearts. Jesus, I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life.